What does it mean Messiah matters? It means apart from him we can do nothing. It means he is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeshua is the only way of salvation. He is everything. We have to have the Tanakh to know the Messiah. But we have to have the Messiah to know the Tanakh. Without Messiah, we have nothing. Basically, it's all about the Messiah. It's Wednesday, May 9th, 2018. This is Messiah Matters number 217. Packing my bags for Ontario. My name is Caleb Hag, and with me, the man who will travel five hours for good live music, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, buddy? Yeah, I'll even I'll even drive. Is it, it's what do you call that music style of the first that opening? Is that is that spooky? That's I like, don't know. I made it. I on a synthesizer you, you, you composed that <laughs> yeah man that's that's cool it's just kind of like i don't know that's kind of eerie spooky feel yeah just like you man <laughs> yeah no doubt man. how's it going if i brother? get bombarded by a, I, i've killed three giant wasps that somehow get in gotten into my basement the that's other not day, good I was, dude it's like it went good. it flew behind me and i the hair on the back of my neck was like, and I'm like, <laughs> what is going on? I wonder what's They're going on with our video. This has happened for the past three uh, episodes, and uh, I haven't had the time or even the know-how to fix it. But uh, it's it's jerky, and it's not. It's like there's some kind of interruption. I don't know what it is. I apologize to everybody watching, um, but you know what can you do? I, I suppose I'm going to have to, uh, I'll probably have to recreate the whole pr- presentation that we do so that uh, we can try to figure it out. Um, but for for this show, for 217, you're going to have to be annoyed, and I apologize for that. Okay, well, it's another episode of Messiah Matters, and we are so happy that you are with us. Before we jump into, uh, you know, important things like book reviews, let's, um, let's just uh, get this out of the way. Uh, Messiah Matters is brought to you by Torah Resource, TorahResource.com. Torah Resource exists to provide biblically-based education for disciples of Yeshua. Go to TorahResource.com today and find all sorts of wonderful free things, um, including articles and, yes, uh, mugs. You can. We have merchandise. I don't know if people realize this, but we do have merchandise. Merch. Yep, like cups and, and bags and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, yeah, and then uh, Messiah Matters is also brought to you by our supporters, our supporters are the backbone of this show. They keep the show going each week. You can become one of our supporters for as little as $5 a month. That's right. For the price of a Big Mac, you can, or even less than a Big Mac, you can get, uh, you can help support this show so thousands of people can be reached every single hmm. week. I could see people are like, hmm, 
Big Mac or support Messiah Matters. Next Big week, Mac. next yeah, next week I'm going to have to you know, I'm we're going to get emails about how Big Macs are not healthy for you from all the the health food nuts out there. So next week it'll be something like cauliflower or something, I don't know. Okay. Um let's move on then. Let's let's go straight into it. What do you say? I mean, do we need to Oh wait, I hang on before we do that. I'm jumping ahead of myself and I apologize for that. Um let's also say this, if you want to be a part of the conversation, uh, please give us a call. Our comment line is 253-465-3205. Actually, we have a comment uh, from our comment line this week. And so we do listen to every single message that comes in. And uh, sometimes they get played and sometimes they don't. You can also send us emails. Our email, email address is chegg at torahresource.com. It's C-H-E-G-G at torahresource.com. Um, yeah, shoot us emails. We review every single one of them. What are you laughing at? Well, one of the emails that came in was like, "Dear Chegg," <laughs> it was like, "Dear," it was like calling you Chegg, like, "Dear C H E G G." I thought that was kind of uh, the person might not have been just thinking, you know, I don't know, but like, did they actually think your name was Chegg? I don't know. <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you, I don't know what's going on with our video, but it's pretty bad today. Is it all? Is it all mine, or is it both? Um. I don't know. That's a chat room. Is it, uh, is it just, is it just Rob's video or is it mine too? We'll find out. We'll find out what the chat room says. Uh, it's only Rob's video. Just Rob's. It's just yours. You know, so here's another reason why you should put down your Big Mac and, and uh, support uh, <laughs> Messiah Matters. We're trying to get uh, Rob a, a better internet connection. And I think that would probably help. So and it's on its way. It's uh, we're we're in the works. It's just a matter of some logistics, but all right, that'll improve in the, in the next month or so. Okay, so every every uh, week we do a segment on this show called "Buy, Borrow, or Beg," and uh, this week it's my turn. And so there's an interesting story how I got this book. I did not purchase this book, so I didn't buy it, and uh, it was given to me. Um. <laughs> So, yeah, this uh, traveled all the way from Montana. My buddy, uh, actually, my buddy's wife brought it for me. Um, she she got it for her husband, and then he thought, uh, "Oh, this is so good, I have to uh, bring it to to Caleb." This is uh, now we know this author. We know this author well because he's uh, he's written other books uh, that have uh, been <laughs> unfortunately influential in the Hebrew roots movement. This uh, is called, and I would like everyone. Well, this is called Wormwood by Lou White. That's right, Lou White. Now, before we get into content of this book, um, you know, there are some things that really annoy me about, uh, well, there are some things that really annoy me about uh, books. One of them is layout, okay? Any, any student at a uh, community college, you go to a community college, okay? And this is, now this is not just this book. So this is for everyone out there who's thinking about writing a book. If you go to community college and you write a paper for any teacher, okay? If you want to make an emphasis and you put everything in caps, you will get marked down. If you want to make emphasis and you put ever, like a full line or something in bold, you will get marked down. That's not how you emphasize things. That's how uh, high school girls emphasize things on Facebook. Yet look at the format of this book. This alone is, I mean, honestly, 
content aside, I wouldn't read this book all the way through. Um, you know, does that remind you of like when someone yells at you via email and yes. they like use all, all caps, caps or right. all bold and then like it's like wow. Well, unfortunately, you know what it says to me, and um, this is not a, a dig on Lou White. This is just uh, people who format any kind of book or any kind of paper this way. It shows me lack of education. It shows me that you have not been taught how to write a proper paper. Like there, you can get a uh, how to write a, a, a paper or um, an essay or something like that. There are articles online, but there are also books for like seven dollars and ninety five cents. Get Caleb, a book, read Caleb, it. You're, you're imposing. You're just imposing arbitrary standards. Okay. Why? Why can't he just say, you know what? I don't. I don't care what your ideal layout or, that, or formatting would be. That is an excellent point. And I want to use uh, all uppercase to get my point across. You know what? That's fair. And uh, what it does, though, is it shows a level of of education. I'm sorry. It does. It, you know, um, it, it, I would, I would put it this way. I I think I understand. I think I agree, but I might not put it the same way. I would put it like this. You're, uh, you're limiting your reach. Right. By keeping that format. You're, there's people who are just not even going to read it because, and it's a reading audience. It's people who there, there are people who read, but just because on of a the regular look basis, it, they're probably not going to pick it up. That's right, because it's and, hard on the eyes. It doesn't. It doesn't. It, it doesn't invite someone the, to sit with it and read it. The reason I'm saying that this is not a dig on Lou White is because there are a lot of people who write like this. And my point to those people, and I'm sure there are people who write like that, who listen to our show. And this is not a dig on you, but the point. It's like, well, hang on. Internet, internet forum. Yeah, exactly. uh, Exactly. And here's the point. If you want more people, if you want to reach a a wider audience, then you need to, to simply format a little bit differently because there are people like myself who, if I see a Facebook post, that's all in caps, or if I see a book that has, you know, caps all over it, underlines and uh, bold and all that kind of stuff, I'll put it down. No matter. Isn't it, isn't it on the border of being like a comic book? I don't mean that that he's not serious. I don't mean that he's joking. What I mean is, like you look at the cover, it reminds me of one of those little graphic novels or whatever. Not that it, it's not a super picture uh, heavy, but it it seems like it's a, I don't know, like a cut and paste put together book that is supposed to get attention quick, and that maybe someone's supposed to be able to flip open and just not necessarily read cover to cover. I don't know. I haven't seen the book, so I'm I'm just throwing stuff at the wall well you know i I think you know i think uh to be honest with you i think there is a a segment of people a group of people who will see this book and they relate to this format of book in other words maybe it's you know uh people who read online a lot uh you know forums you know forum people who are reading a lot of forums might relate uh to the format of this book now we haven't even gotten to content and and uh, i don't i really don't want to get too hung up on on format no, but I, I, fossilized customs is a book that i had what 20 years ago maybe right Could it be that yeah. yeah and it was the same thing it had little pictures it was almost like someone took cut out all these magazine things and then put them on a copy machine and then made a lay, that's how we did the layout right, right. It had little pictures and text um, and maybe uh, like tabloidish uh, kind of thing. Um, that's where I learned Hebrew word pictures. So, so here's the thing: is that is that for me? I'm actually learning for, uh, format. 
I'm learning to format different books. So basically one of the jobs that I've taken on at Tor Resource is I've had to learn a, a formatting program for texts. And maybe this is one reason that it bothers me a lot now is because basically what I've done is I'm taking my father's books um, that he's written and many people have complained that they're in eight and a half by 11. So they're, they're full on full pieces of paper. And what I'm having to do is I'm going through and I'm putting everything down into a six by nine, which is essentially the size of this book, except for much thicker, of course. And so I have to go through, I have to edit everything that, that he does. I have to reformat everything so that it'll fit in these six, six by nine and, and whatnot. And so this has become kind of one of my pet peeves, I would say. But there are people, there are professionals who do this for a li like professional publishing companies. They just, they'll get a person who specializes in this. Anyway, okay, let's go on to content of this book. Um, basically from what, from the, from what I've read of this and, and I've done a couple of different, uh, I've taken many sections of this and, and read, um, what I get, uh, Mr. White to be saying is, uh, Wormwood, he, he, somebody else said that this is like a, uh, picture association turned dictionary. And so basically he tries to associate certain ideas with words. So, uh, and that's a good that that's a very good example of of what I think Mr. White is actually trying to do in this book. So he takes a word like wormwood, the the name of the book, okay, um, and he's going to associate something like Christianity with it. Now, Christianity, he's also going to associate with things like Babylon, okay, come out of Babylon is the kind of idea. But then he's also going to associate a different idea with with wormwood which would be anyone who uses the names god or lord which mr white says is um uh calling on a false god um he also is going to associate with wormwood so now what he's done is not only has he basically put christians into a box of pagan babylon but he's also put anyone who uses the the words god or lord in the english um into this. So, so now every time you hear, you know, Wormwood or anytime you hear Christian, you also hear, you know, Babylon. So it's almost like this, this word association. Um, I did, you know, back when fossilized customs came out, I did another test of this. Uh, 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 I did the same test that we did then. Uh, what we did with uh, fossilized customs, and, and we used to do this at conferences, we would take fossilized customs because it was really all the rage in the Messianic and Hebrew roots movements. We'd take fossilized customs and we would ask someone, you know, if someone was trying to talk about the book, we'd ask them to choose any page in the entire book. And then we'd look at it and we would see how many um, false statements were made by Mr. White. And so, uh, and inevitably, no matter what page the person chose, there was always at least a handful of false statements. I did the same thing with this book. And uh, not on every page. Now, I, I would say probably three out of four. Um, Mr. White makes statements that are categorically false. Um, and three out of four pages, that's, that's a lot. Um, really what he does is, unfortunately, he, it seems as though he's taken a lot of things, um, word association. So in other words, if, uh, here's one thing that Mr. White likes to do. If it sounds like this, then it must mean this. Jesus is a, uh, is a perfect example. Mr. White says that Jesus really means hail Zeus, which uh, is simply wrong. Um, and therefore, anyone who uses the name Jesus is calling on Zeus 
and um, therefore the Christian church is obviously uh, Babylon. Uh, he also gets really into politics in, in this book. Um, he says that the Jesuits um, are running the UN and that uh, the Jesuits are really the ones who have, um, you know, they're a, a governmental system that's trying to overthrow and uh, take down the entire uh, uh, world, you know, one world order and these kind of things. Whether or not you uh, you are into those kind of conspiracy theories or not, um, there really are some some uh, leaps that he has come to. And the, finally, the last thing I'd say, the there is, um, I would say, he tries to to show some form of scholarship without any education in scholarship, and uh, it shines through quite a bit. For me, Wormwood by Mister Lou White is a bag. I don't think that I would buy it. I wouldn't recommend anyone borrow it. Um, quite frankly, uh, it's not really worth the paper that it was uh, printed on, unfortunately. So, yeah, it's if I remember right, I first think bag it, we had on it's show. either in that book or one of his others where he says, we know the name, we know how to say the Tetragrammaton, Yahuwah, because it's the word Yehuda, Judah, <laughs> yeah. without the Dalit. Mm. And then and so it's a, there's a letter mysticism that happens. Right, right. And and there's a cherry picking from the scribal tradition, just as there's a cherry picking from his uh, font for his script he uses for Paleo Hebrew. Um, it's uh, very uh, select and idealized, and in that that selection process is, that he goes through is based on a, a quite the imagination. Um, and creative imagination, but nothing grounded in actual right. original languages or history. So or grammatical, yeah. grammatical, historical meaning. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to uh, a new segment that we have. And uh, my apologies to our executive producers today. Um, I forgot to roll credits at the beginning of our show. So let's roll credits now. All right. Um, and so everyone can see our executive producers for today. We started something new and I would uh, like to plug it now um, because it is important. And basically what it is, is we are giving um, credited executive and associate uh, producer credits to people. You can become accredited associate or executive producer by going to torresource.com hover over radio and go down to Messiah Matters. If you just hover over it, there's something that pops out that says producer credit. Click on there. There's all the information. Um, there's some nice perks. And of course, one of those perks is that our executive producers um, are not only named in our show notes and at the beginning of our uh, show, which just happened, uh, but uh, they can also give shout outs to people and uh, write notes about the show if they'd like to. Um, and this note uh, from our producers today, who are Bob and LaRue Miller, and they, uh, they bought uh, executive producer credits and um, they get all the perks that come along with that. And uh, normally, shout outs would not necessarily be this long, however, uh, since Bob and LaRue are our first executive producers, I think that we will re read their uh, note totally in full. Here we go. They say, uh, Bob and LaRue say, here's a shout out to Abigail Jane Gabriel and Adelaine Grace Gra uh, Grable. 
sorry, Grable, not Gabriel, our precious granddaughters in Idaho. Grandma and grandpa love you and are so proud of you. Abigail, our big five-year-old dynamo. You are such a great big sister and a fair game player. That's always important. Always making sure everyone plays by the rules. I think I used to be that one. We love listening to you sing the Shema and quote your Bible verses for us. We love your songs about Adonai and your silly songs too. It's fun visiting with you today and celebrating Shavuot soon. Little Adeline, Adelaide, Adelaide, I'm sorry, Little Adelaide, our 20-month-old ball of fire. We love how you sing and dance and know exactly what you want and when. It's fun to watch you try to do everything your big sister Abigail does. Shout out to mom, Stephanie, the best, best fun mom ever, and Dr. Daddy Nicholas, the best, uh, the bestest functional doctor chiropractor ever, but most of all, a mommy and daddy that love Adonai and are raising you both to love him too. We love you very much. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, well, I must th- add yes? that I had the, the wonderful joy of having Abigail sing a song for me. She wanted oh. to sing a song for me. They, we uh, shared a Shabbat together once, and um, she had a song she shared, and I, I don't remember which song it was, but it just it melted my heart. She, um, she's got a face like you wouldn't believe. She, she's, yeah. she looks like uh, Shirley Temple or something. She's just rosy cheeks and, she, and all. And she's just, you know, there's, she's got a lot of courage. Oh, yeah. To sing in front of a stranger like that. Yeah. So, uh, wonderful. Bob, nice. Bob nice and Larue, shout out by the Millers. Bob and Larue, we will bless you here in just a second, which we will do for for all of our executive producers. They left it up to me to choose uh, three sound clips for them that they wanted to hear, <laughs> and so I put uh, I put my I put three together for for them. Here we go. I'm a Catholic, which is the best of all the religions, really, because we have the most rules and the best clothes. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like. Uh, your opinion, man. Read your Bible is interpreted by experts. All right. Thank you very much to Bob and LaRue Miller. They will be credited for the rest of the spring uh, the spring shows that we have. And be blessed for being our first executive producers. You've been blessed. Let's move on. We have um, a question. Oh, but yeah, by the way, so if you want to become a, an associate uh, producer or an executive producer, please go to Tor Resource, follow the steps I said before, and uh, find out all the wonderful perks you can get for uh, becoming an associate producer and an executive producer. Okay, um, here's a question that we had. Now, do we want to move to our main topic, or should we? I don't do- know. We're like we're like a third of the way into the show here. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, let's move to a question. Here's a question. Uh, this is in the show notes for everybody who gets them. You can get our show notes by uh, going to Tor Resource and clicking on Messiah Matters under the radio tab. Okay, question. Was the giving of the Spirit to all believers something new that happened only in conjunction with the New Covenant? And what is the significance of this happening on Shavuot? This is an excellent question. Now, the the question goes on. Um, Should I read the whole question? Or do we want to respond there? We've actually talked about this on our show before. We have talked about this on our show before. and um, It's a good question because we're in, obviously, we're in the season of counting the Omer. Right. And we could probably touch on this. I know next week we kind of have a, a, a giant book review kind of s- set apart. So, um, and Shavuot's just right around the corner. So this is a good day maybe to, to dive into that a little bit. Okay. Um, I'll go first. 
Okay. We've talked about this many times on our show, actually, I, maybe three or four times. And my father's written an excellent article um, called Spirituality, Are We Better Off Now? That can be found on Tor Resource, but it's also there's, it's linked in your show notes. So um, anyone who gets our show notes, you can find it there. Um, basically, the way that I understand the giving of the spirit at Shavuot, first of all, it's traditional. And I believe probably I think it can be proven from the, the Torah text uh, that the Torah itself was given on Shavuot. And this is the celebration. This is one of the main celebrations that we have. It also links our justification, that is our our uh, being rede- our redemption out of slavery. Um, it also uh, links that redemption to sanctification, which is the keeping of the uh, of the covenant, which was given at Sinai. And um, so, what is the new covenant? The New Covenant is the Torah actually being written on the heart. And this is, uh, I think, one of the main reasons that the Spirit was given uh, or shown to be given to the nations on uh, Shavuot. What what happened uh, to the apostles when the Spirit was given? And perhaps a better question is, was the Spirit present in believers of the coming Messiah before the Messiah came? And my answer to that is, yes, it was. What's the difference? The difference is, is that this, the Spirit enabled people and prepared the hearts of the nations to receive the Messiah. Whereas before, it was really uh, an attempt to, um, it was, you know, Yeshua comes and he says, I came for the lost sheep of Israel, Right? But then all of a sudden the mission somewhat changes and the spirit enables the disciples to take the good news of the Messiah and the good news of Torah out to the nations. And so the mission of the apostles now changes to go out to all the nations. That's my understanding. So is there a change? Yes, there is a change. But was there no spirit before the uh, the event in Acts of Shavuot? No, I don't believe that. In fact, I think any believer who... Uh, believed even Abraham, right? He, uh, Abraham longed to see my day and he saw it, right? Abraham was filled with the Holy Spirit and had the Holy Spirit. Um, and I believe everyone who believed in the coming Messiah before and that he would uh, deal with the sin of the of, uh, of mankind and deal with the serpent was, uh, was in fact filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what I think the difference is. Is just a changing of focus from Israel to the nations. Thoughts? Yeah, yeah. It there. There's so much. I mean, we could spend a whole show um, talking about about this. But one another hint is what happens on Shavuot is that there's two loaves of bread baked, and that bread is made from grain that's gathered from all throughout the land is brought together. Um, right. And, and they bring uh, a new grain, right? They bring new grain from all the dwelling places. So the idea is all throughout the land, new grain is brought to Jerusalem and mixed together and made into loaves. So you have grain coming from all over the land and it baked into into these two loaves, whereas the beginning of the counting of the Omer, it was just a it was just an uh, uh, Omer from local grain, right? That was representative of the harvest to come. But here you have actual uh, grain taken, so it's kind of like this ingathering of of uh, the corners of the world kind of coming together right. in Jerusalem, and, and as one loaf, right? As one 
one body. Right. Uh, but yeah, it, good stuff. Uh, uh, Caleb, your point about how we need to see the spring feasts as tied together. Um, they're not, they're not on separate tracks, you know, connected just by, uh, by the weekly Shabbat that, that it's clear that, and I know this is a disputed area is how do we count the Omer? Um, but I think it's really key that, that we do see Shavuot and Pesach connected. as, yeah, as it, and, and the counting the Omer in between as, as a, a whole message. Right. Okay. That was, uh. Nice and quick. Okay, hang on just a sec. I think actually I forgot to grab another um, clip here that I wanted. Also, one other bookend is that it's made with with comets. It has leaven in it. Right. So whereas the Pesach is unleavened, right? So that's another uh, what's happening here in, over this time frame. So. Okay, let's listen to a, uh, this is a comment that came in on our comment line. We'll switch uh, topics now. And actually, uh, well, let's listen to the comment first, and then we'll, um, we'll respond to it. I have a question, and honestly, it would just be, uh, what would be your speculation? Um, in John chapter 8, when the, when the Messiah is writing on the ground in regards to the woman supposedly caught in the act of adultery, no one knows what he wrote. I've been told that what he had written in the ground was from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, saying, Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken Yahweh, the fountain of living waters. However, when I see the Messiah's track record of uh, using Deuteronomy throughout his ministry, I'm more apt to believe that what he potentially wrote in the ground would have been from Deuteronomy 19:15, because it pertains more to the situation about the fact that there was only one witness there, and it was the woman, and everyone else were basically accusers. So there were there no word could be established upon two or three witnesses because they, the only witness that was there was the woman. So that's just my speculation. I just want to know what you guys think. Okay. Well, yeah, spec. It certainly is speculation. I'm, I'm, she's right on. She's right on saying this is speculation, and so right. I appreciate that. Uh, first of all, thanks for the call. We love to get calls, but I, I like how she's already understanding that this is, we're entering into a speculative realm, and that she frames her question with that. She's still okay asking the question, and I think it's a great question to ask. And I just wanted to uh, acknowledge the wisdom in framing it as speculation. Okay. So, With right that on. being yeah. said, I, I think that it's uh, speculation. Um, well, it's speculation whether or not it was a woman caught in adultery in and of itself. Uh, we've talked about this as well on oh, our show before. The, the, the um, yeah, th this is a, th this is a, a text that uh, is, is highly controversial um, and not simply because of what happens in, in it rather because of, the fact that it's not found in any it's, early... Was it uh, Dr. Wallace's, it's this my favorite Bible story that's not in the Bible? Right. Or um, something like that. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read this because, the, I mean, it's long, but you know what? I think it sums up well. This is from Bruce Metzger's textual commentary, a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament, second edition. He says this, the evidence for the non-Johannine origin, that means that it wasn't in the book of John originally, of the pericope of the adulterous uh, is overwhelming. It is absent from such early and diverse manuscripts as P66, 75, Olive, B, L, N, T, W, X, Y. Uh, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. 
uh, codices A and C, which is uh, very famous codices, are defective in this part of John, but it is highly probable that neither contain the pericope for careful measurement discloses that there would not have been space enough on the missing leaves to include right. the section along with the rest of the text. So essentially right. we, can, we, we can say that it wasn't in those either. In the East, the passage is absent from the oldest form of the Syriac version, as well as from the Sahidic and the sub mimic versions uh, and the older Bohiric manuscripts. Some Armenian manuscripts and the old Gregarian version omit it. In the West, the passage is absent from the Gothic version and from the several old Latin manuscripts. No Greek church father prior to Euthemius Zygabinus, uh, who lived in the 12th century, comments on the passage, and Euthemius declares that the accurate copies of the gospel do not contain it. When one adds to this impressive and diversified list of external evidence the consideration that the style and vocabulary of the pericope differ noticeably from the rest of the fourth gospel, and that it Inter- interrupts the sequence of 752 and 812 and following, the case against its be- being of Johannine authorship appears to be conclusive. In other words, Metzger, I think, rightfully says that it was not originally in John. Okay. At the same time, he goes on, the account has all of the earmarks of historical veracity. It is obviously a piece of oral tradition which circulated in certain parts of the Western Church and which was subsequently incorporated into various manuscripts at various places. Most copyists apparently thought that it would uh, would interrupt John's narrative least if it were inserted after 752. And he lists a handful of manuscripts. Others placed it after 736 or after 744 or after 2125. Or after Luke twenty one thirty eight, so right, in some right. manuscripts it's in Luke. Significantly enough, in many of the witnesses that contain the passage, it it is marked with asterisks or obli, indicating that though the scribes included the account, they were aware that it is that it lacked satisfactory credentials. This actually, I mean, the the real uh, question is whether or not this is scripture. So. Uh, and I, for a lot of people, that is a jolting thing to say. Um, you know, it's also like the passage that's often, uh, <laughs> often preached on when he says, "Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they've done." That also is uh, lacks a lot of Luke, yeah, you know, a lot of early manuscript evidence. Um, of course, if you tell any pastor, well, that probably isn't in your Bible. Um, they're going to have a, a a huge problem with that. However. Really, when you look at the manuscript evidence, the, the you know what do we what do we consider scripture? What is scripture? You know, in my opinion, the long ending of Mark, if it wasn't from the hand of Mark, it's not scripture, right? The original letter that was penned by Mark is what is scripture. It's what the church has decided was, and when I say churches, I mean the Ecclesia of God, the communities, the, the believing communities that were willing to die for these things. They were willing to die for certain manuscripts. And uh, if you don't have uh, certain things added until much later, the question is, is it scripture? And I think this is why Dr. Wallace probably rightfully says it is the greatest story that's not in our, you know, the greatest Bible story not in our Bibles. With that said, 
I think that there are many things that we can learn from the adulterous woman. And, you know, Dr. Wallace also does say um, it, it probably is a true story, but w whether or not it was an adulterous woman or not, we don't know because we don't know how accurate the, the tradition is. Okay, let's pretend that the story in and of itself is exactly how it happened, and this is exactly what went on. I don't think that we can actually speculate what Yeshua wrote in the sand. However, our caller's uh, observation is probably the best observation to have when it comes to the adulterous woman, which is that if, if she was caught in adultery, where's the man? Where are the witnesses and where's the man? In other words, why are you killing the woman? Both the man and the woman need to be, that are caught in adultery are to be stoned, right? And so Yeshua is asking, he's calling forth the witnesses. And I think that this is, uh, you know, when when he uh, when Metzger says that this has all the historical veracity, I think this is what he's he means. In other words, Yeshua is uh, very wise in in how he deals with this situation. Uh, it's it's a very fishy situation anyway. That the you know they bring forth a woman, they don't bring forth the man. There's no witness willing to step forward to accuse her. There's something going on here, and Yeshua knows it. Um, so I think that it's uh, okay. Uh, and I want to. I'm reading a. I'm reading in the chat room. Scripture or not, it appears the Messiah is still administering grace through the proper living of the Torah. I don't know if it's necessarily grace or if it's upholding. Torah, right? I mean, it is grace. The Torah gives grace, but you can't, you know, in other words, he's not a judge. He can't, he can't, uh, at least not temporarily at this point, he's not a judge, right? He doesn't have right. the, he's not recognized as a, right. Well, although we do have, you know, people coming to him, Hey, tell my brother to divide the inheritance, you right. know, and stuff like that. And he, he says, not my job, you know? Right. So, um, so, but he, He's not, he can't give the death penalty here. He knows that, you know, and, and not only, so that would be a, a contrary to Torah that he's not a judge and he's giving a death penalty for something. That's number one. Number two, there's not enough witnesses. No witnesses are coming forward. Number three, where's the man? This is not done in accordance with Torah. So in other words, he's upholding Torah, whether it's grace or not, he doesn't have the, from the Torah's perspective, Yeshua at this point in time on the earth doesn't have the ability to hand down the death penalty to this woman. So essentially what he's doing is just keeping Torah. Right? And it's just as much about the, the guys who are ready to stone her. Right. And, they're and, and calling them out. Right. And so it's and kind of... And, but what we do see in this story, and one of the things that I think is is noteworthy, is you know they they constantly are trying to peg Yeshua, right? The Pharisees, Sadducees, everybody—they don't like him. They're trying to peg, and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to back him into a corner constantly. And Yeshua is always able to sidestep, and he knows he sees the heart too, right? And so this story is very reminiscent of the same kind of things that we see in in these kind of stories. Um, but what did he write, boy? Who knows? Don't know. And what language was it in? <laughs> Greek. Okay. I would agree that the Jeremiah <laughs> passage that would be long. That would be a lot. You know, you'd have to get back and look at it, and then get down. You know, maybe he drew to a me, picture I of. I visualize of, something that's shorter. Something that's. He drew uh, the picture of the temple. Like, why aren't you taking her to the temple? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. let's move on. Let's actually get to our main topic here today. Because I think right. it's, I think that, uh, I think that uh, uh, Rob's going to wax boldly on this. 
Um, for those who are new to our show and um, don't know who uh, Rob is, Rob teaches Aramaic and uh, uh, Greek at Torah Resource Institute and has also uh, is, is very well learned in his Hebrew, so much so that he, uh, he not only has taught it and does teach it, but um, that he reads books in Hebrew, which is very interesting to me. Anyway, okay, here we go. Here is now. I I will um, I'll let people know who this is from because I I think that it's uh, you know he's trying to sell books as well. Um, so there's a man named William Sanford. William has uh, and I have emailed back and forth many times. Um, I don't think he really remembers me necessarily. I don't know. Maybe he does. Um, but uh, out of the blue, it's been maybe a year and a half, two years since I've uh, had any exchange with with Mr. Sanford. Um, and he's the one who has compiled the Matt's Bible, which is the Messianic Olive Tov Bible or scriptures, Messianic Olive Tov scriptures. Okay. So um, I would say that um, Mr. Sanford is, and if you go to his uh, YouTube or whatever, his Facebook, any of it, it's all very, very, very et Olive Tov theology heavy. I mean, he is, there's, this is his focus. Okay. Um, he writes out of the blue to me and he says this, he says, I have a very simple question. If the Aleph Tav is simply a direct object pointer, why isn't it in every verse throughout the Old Testament that has a transitive verb with direct objects? I emailed the rabbis in Israel that have the website Ask the Rabbi and asked them what they thought of the Aleph Tav and they gave me quotes from the writings of the most famous Jewish rabbis down through the history, like Akiva and R.S. Hersach, uh, who believed... Hirsch. 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 I, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I put an A in there. Sorry. Uh, Hirsch, correct. Who believed and taught the Aleph Tav was a mark of the hand of the Almighty with profound spiritual significance. There are over 200 chapters in the Old Testament with no Aleph Tavs and hundreds of more chapters with only one or two Aleph Tavs. And few people know this. All this evidence supports the Aleph Tav as being something extraordinary in biblical text. Now, before... I, I don't know what Rob is going to say, I but I he is much more qualified to deal with anything Hebrew than I am. There's no doubt about that. I would just like to give my my quick observations of this, and then I will throw it to you um, to be able to respond. First of all, I'm not sure why Mr. Sanford thinks that mystical mystics, Jewish mystics, are going to have. Uh, I mean, why would you take their word for something like uh, on this? The mystics will find secret meaning behind every rock and every letter in the entire Bible. They find mystical meanings in the spaces uh, in, in between. I'm not joking. This, this is true. Be, in the spaces between the letters in the Torah. Um, they believe in Metatron. They believe in all sorts of nonsense. It's essentially uh, it's a non-biblical religion. Essentially, when you talk about the mystics of of Judaism, uh, so I'm not sure why uh, you think that Ask the Rabbi website or quotes from uh, Jewish mystics it gives your argument any more weight. If anything, it lessens your argument. That's not you're not helping yourself here. Uh, that's number one, um, and number two. Personally. 
and no offense to anyone who is all in on the Olive Top, I see this a lot like flat earth. You know, what benefit is it to me if there's some secret meaning in the Olive Top? Okay, so let's say, let's pretend for a few seconds that the Olive Top has secret covenantal meaning hidden in it for, you know, that no one's discovered until the 20th century. If that's the case, how does that bring me closer to God? How does my relationship with God get better if I believe in the Aleph Tav and find the secret hidden meaning, but Rob doesn't? Am I more spiritual? Do I have a better understanding of the Bible? What does it do for the verses where all of a sudden I see the secret meaning? Nothing. It doesn't do anything. The, main, the meaning of the text is still there for me to understand. I'm still just as close with God. The same with the flat earth. Like, what benefit does it have? This is, you know, to me, this is, uh, we talked the past several weeks about asking good questions. To me, this is not a good question. In, not Mr. Sanford's. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to put Mr. Sanford down here. Uh, n- not his question. His question is a decent question. Um, and and uh, Rob will, will, I'm sure, answer it. But for me, the question of, is there hidden meaning in the Aleph Tav, is not a, you know, that's not a, that's not a very, uh, it's not a very good question because what benefit is it? What benefit does it have for us? The answer is none. Okay, I'm done. Well, yeah, um, this is a, it was a surprising email. Uh, Caleb received it and shared it with me. Uh, and there's so much to say about this. I'm, I'm going to try to boil down, you know, some of the basics, but I've actually mentioned to Caleb doing a, um, a seminar maybe this summer, just like a, a thing people can log in and go through and, and show slides. If there's interest, if there's needs, I don't know how many uh, people are, are dealing with this uh, strange doctrine. But, um, and we've shared this before, you know, uh, Chuck Missler was teaching this back in the, when I first listened to him in the early 90s, I think it was. Um, and he, his big thing was that it's not translatable, right? It's untranslatable. That was, and um, that is like this hook. Oh, there's something in Hebrew that's not translatable. And and you can prove that it's not translatable by looking at it interlinear. They never put a word underneath it. Um, can I interject <laughs> just real quick? Sure. With untranslatable. So uh, we, uh, we have a small group and uh, there's a just a wonderful couple in our small group. He listens, so I'm sure he's... I'm sure he'll hear this, but uh, they're they're Ukrainian and they speak Russian, right? And so we're sitting around the table, and I said, "How do you say fun in Russian?" And she looks at me and she says, "We don't have a word for fun in Russian." And I mean, the whole table just lost it. We just uncontrollably laughed. But I mean, the idea that something is not there's no direct translation in another; it's untranslatable in another language happens a lot in in yeah. many different but languages is, but that doesn't apply to the et i guess yeah it that's a myth that it's not translatable and uh, the fact is it's a it it does translate and and there's a, a bunch of ways that we can demonstrate that um and one of the ways is we can understand too that it's it's bigger than just the bible so we have ancient inscriptions from the land of israel we have inscriptions that are in the Phoenician language, Moabite, like the Moabite. Just look up the Moabite stone. There's a handful of ets. 
functioning as a direct object marker on the Moabite stone. And I think that's what, uh, eighth uh, century BC. Um, and so we have uh, it in Aramaic inscriptions. We have it in Hebrew inscriptions from the first temple period, from Judea, where we have uh, the ostraca with various uh, letters, like the, uh, the letters from Arad and the letters from Lachish, where we just have, you know, they use potsherds and they wrote in ink in, in Hebrew. And they use et as a, it's part of the living language. So you have to remember that language is, it's a spoken language. Right. And the writing is just to capture what is spoken. And so it's not like the Bible is, and, and what's dangerous, I think, about this view, it, it, it's like bibliomancy or, uh, or almost divination, where you're going to open the written text and you're going you're gonna to kind of like Ouija board to like specific letters, and then those letters are going to somehow uh, have some sort of super cosmic meaning. That um, that's not the way Yeshua, right? And there's no no one in the scriptures teach us to read the Bible that way. Um, but that's not even it, because are uh, all that there is to say. Because the word that is spelled Aleph Tav can have at least three meanings. It is used et is used as like in Genesis one one, right? Bara right? Bereshit bara Elohim et Hashemayim ve'et haharetz. But then it also can be used for at. It's vocalized at. It's still spelled the same. And in a Torah scroll, it's going to look the same. All of top, but it's the word for you. So like in Genesis 12, for example, where Abraham is talking to, or it's Avram talking to Sarai, and he, they're going down into Egypt, and he's saying, tell them you're my, because she's a beautiful woman. He's, wants to, he, he's not sure where these strange people he's going to live with. He wants to to have Sarai say that she's his sister, and so when he says "at" twice to her "at," and it's just it's it's anybody who's taken first quarter Hebrew, you learn "ani ata at," right? Who he anachnu atem, right? Aten. You learn "at," and it's spelled olive tav. So that's the second one. Another one, "et" can mean with. It can mean with. And there's all sorts of right. places where eight means with. But in all these places, if you take the vowels away, all you see is the word Aleph Tov. Um, and so, and we have these, again, in inscriptions and other uh, uh, Semitic language contexts outside the Bible. So that's a big problem for someone who sees the, the quote, this Aleph Tov as being something significant. It's like, well, wait a minute. It's used in common um, inscriptions from Moabite to Phoenician to Aramaic. Grocery lists. Things, things that have nothing to do with the Bible. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, so that's uh, something they would need to explain. But, and there's so much to say. Uh, uh, maybe one last point I, I will say today, and then if, if, we, if we have interest, we can do a, a full uh, seminar on it um, and go in detail, is that the context, and, and Caleb, you, you included this in our show notes today. That it's, I, I was surprised. That was over four years ago. That was January of 2014 when we published this Seven Steps to the Aleph Tav Bible. That's how long you know, ago it was, probably since we talked about this. But um, if you look at where in Revelation, where it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
It's a handful of times. And it's always connected with another phrase like the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Sometimes Yeshua says, I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And he doesn't say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Sometimes he'll say, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And so he, he has these three basic synonyms, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And it's a parallelism. And that's how we know what he means by Alpha and Omega. He means the beginning and the end. He's not, it's not referring to a Hebrew word or a Greek word for that matter. Even if you look in the, for example, the, the Peshitta translation from the fourth century of the book of Revelation, yeah, they'll change it to the Semitic alphabet, Alpha and the Tav, right? I am the Alpha and the Tav. But it's not, it doesn't say, I am the Aleph Tav. It's the, I am the Aleph and the Tav. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. And this is so important uh, because it's, it's about Yeshua telling us who he is. And he, uh, elsewhere we see, for example, in the Epistle of Hebrews, he, it, it says uh, that Yeshua is the author, the, the author and the finisher of our faith. And the, the word author there is the word arche, and the word uh, finisher is from telos, which are the same uh, uh, basic roots that we get from the beginning and the end. The idea is, uh, given one more nuance that I'll get into here, uh, even though there's so much to say, that he says, I am the one, I am the living one who was dead and is alive forevermore. Mm. And what Yeshua uh, wants to to underlie here is that he's eternal, but somehow, and this is the mystery of the incarnation of Yeshua incarnate, actually tasting death, actually uh, in some mysterious way that we can't grasp, dying. Beca- literally, it says, "I became death," and but but lo, I live forevermore, and that that's that's the baptism that we're baptized into. When we, like Paul says in Romans, when you when we're immersed, we're we're baptized into Yeshua's death, and so when we come out, we are we have His eternal life, and this this ties back to the Shavuot thing too of why the incarnation, why the giving of the Ruach Hakodesh after Shavuot or at Shavuot, and how is that different from before? Is because the incarnation is where the eternal Son of God became flesh and blood and actually died, right, and then rose again and uh, lives forever. And that in our participation in that magnificent, uh, unspeakable mystery, unspeakable and indescribable mystery, is that we are cleansed of our sin and we are forgiven, and we participate in his resurrection life, and we become... Uh, members of the new of this Brit Hadashah, this new covenant, this new body, and the ruach is is there with us, and we worship this Father in, in spirit and in truth. So there's so much to be said okay. about what what Paul or what uh, John means by I am the Alpha and the Omega, what Yeshua means that's captured by John. That uh, this whole et thing, this whole Aleph Tav thing, is such a distraction that it reminds me of Luke 11, where where Yeshua is telling the Pharisees, look, you don't even enter. And you prevent other people from entering. In other words, I see this as a stumbling block for people who are going to waste precious time thinking that this is somehow going to bring them closer to Yeshua, when in fact 
they're missing the obvious. So Aleph Omega so, okay, hang, 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 wait, does not wait, refer wait. to the et. Well, okay, hang on just a sec. But let's uh, now I want you to respond directly to his question. His question is, if it's the sign of the direct object, why don't we see it in every single chapter, every single verse of, oh, the, of oh. the Old Testament? I have some examples that, so I just pulled some examples uh, just because there'd be, people uh, know there's, you know, bless the Lord, right? Baruchu Adonai. Well, I gave some verses here. Some use the et, some don't. Like in Judges 5, verse 2, you'll see Baruchu Adonai. And what that means is everybody bless the Lord. In in Psalm 103, verse 20, Baruchu Adonai, or Baruchu Yodhevavi, bless the Lord. Well, but we'll also see, like in in Nehemiah or Nehemiah nine five, Baruch Hu et Adonai, bless et the Lord, or Psalm one thirty four verse one, Baruch Hu et Adonai. They mean exactly the same thing. So just because et means something and has meaning as a direct object marker, particularly poetry, and most of the Tanakh is poetry, poetry. All rules are out. You can have verb first, then subject, or you can have subject verb. Right. You can have uh, you can have object object verb subject. You know because poetry uses parallelism. It and doesn't imagery. go by the rule. It doesn't play by it the rules. It doesn't go by the rules. So right. so the fact that someone identified uh, you know two hundred verses where there's no et that is not uh, that's like. Well, there's probably verses that don't have another word in it, too. Or there's how many word, verses are there that don't have the definite article, the ha, right? I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a moot point. And it's, it's an observation that would be given weight by someone who has actually not learned Hebrew. They, they're, right. they're trying to run with something that has no substance. Finally, I'll give you one other example. We have Shema, right? Shema Bekol to Shema bechol. So Shema is to hear. Be is just the the uh, the uh, prefix, right? The be, and then kol is the word for sound or voice. Shema bechol, and that means obey. It's an idiom. An idiom. It means obey. So in Genesis twenty-seven eight, Shema you know obey my voice. Exodus 18, Shema Bekol, obey the voice. Deuteronomy 30, Shema Bekol. But there's also in the Torah, and this is throughout Scripture, but I just chose from the, from the Torah, Shema et Hakol, or Shema et Kol Adonai, to hear the voice of the Lord, or to hear the voice of, of someone. Genesis 3, 8, Numbers 7, 89, Deuteronomy 5, 25. These are, we still have Shema, and we still have kol as the object, but instead of et, we have a b, and that it means different things. So, what I want to point out there, with contrasting shema bekol with shema et hakol, are uh, different ways that Hebrew uses to make a, a meaning with a limited set of words. Shema bekol, kol is still a direct object. Right. If I say Shema Bakoli, Kalev, Caleb, listen, obey me. I would say Shema Bakoli. Kol, Koli is still a definite direct object, but I don't need the et to mark it. I mark it with the be. I can use the, the letter bet to mark it. Uh, so 
um, that's just, there's so many, um, little, uh, learning points that if a person took time to learn Hebrew, they wouldn't ask the question that, that, uh, William is asking. I guess that's another way I would put that. Um, and I, and I remember somewhere he said he's been studying this for 10 years and I thought, wow, you know, I think it better, better use of 10 years in my opinion would be studying Hebrew um, with a, with some good teachers who actually know it as a living language and, and under have, have been immersed in the scriptures um, and can actually, you know, you learn to be competent where you can read the scripture and translate it and defend your translation to other people who know Hebrew. And, right. they're, and they'll go, yeah, okay, good. Uh, rather than just making up meaning um, and then trying to sell this idea that this is important and not enough people know it. You know what though? I, I'll give it to, I'll give it to Mr. Sanford. There's no doubt that he believes it fully and 100%. I mean, he is all in, you know, I think that uh, it's not just for him. I, you know, I believe he's, he's retired. I don't believe for him, this is a, you know, a way just to su- sustain himself. I think he had, you know, he, he's all in on this. And um, you know, there are people that are all in on a lot of different, uh, a lot of different theologies and a lot of different beliefs. Um, I don't think that uh, this, you know, our, I don't think we're going to change Mr. Sanford's mind. And that's not the point of, of us addressing this or talking about it. It's more to um, give our listeners a better understanding of why we believe that this is not something that, uh, you know, this is a, this is a belief that we believe is built on sand. And for the reasons that Rob has said, and uh, for the uh, other reasons as well, there's a lot of nuances to the Hebrew language. And this simply does not hold weight in my opinion. Oh, uh, one other point that I'd like to share. If I could. Do we have mm-hmm. time? Oh, sure. In our era, we're in third quarter Aramaic right now and and last couple of weeks we read from Genesis 1 first several verses of Genesis 1 and we we read the Hebrew of course but we read several Aramaic translations from the ancient world Jewish translations um the Samaritan we looked at the Samaritan translation which is uh you know it's a what we'd think of as a, a mosaic covenant community they don't consider themselves Jews of course but the Samaritans have an Aramaic targum we looked at uh, the Peshitta, which is a different community, um, and a couple, Onkelos, Jonathan, a couple different uh, Jewish translations. And Aramaic, across the board, translates the et as yodtav, yat. Hmm. So, so there is a word for the direct object marker in Aramaic. It's in Samaritan Aramaic. It's in Christian Aramaic. It's in Jewish Aramaic. Um and it's even in ancient Aramaic inscriptions that are not biblically related at all. And it's spelled Yod Tav, Yat. And here's another interesting challenge for someone like William Sanford would be to say, wow, you know, if, if, all, if all the uh, gospel citations of Yeshua are Aramaic, like uh, Eli Eli Lama Sabachthani, right? Or Talita Kumi, right? The little girl arise, right? Um, and uh, we learn Abba, Father, or Maranatha, right? Right. There's all different words we learn that are that are actually we call Aramaic. Um, why wouldn't Yeshua say, "I am the Yod Tov"? Right. If if Aramaic was was obviously an important language enough for him to be reciting that Psalm 22, not in Hebrew but in Aramaic, while on the cross during the 
ninth hour, which was an hour of prayer, obviously, we know. Um, why was he reciting a psalm in, Aram- in Aramaic? Well, when the Aramaic would not have the Aleph Tav, it would right. have the Yod Tav. Right. So there, there's so many inconsistencies. Um, but, you know, a person could be in the world of, a, of the, like the MATS Bible and spend their whole life there and never even, it would never have it dawn on them to, ha- to actually see it in proper perspective. So one of the things that I've talked about with Rob and, and one of the things that he's uh, considered is if people are actually interested in uh, going deeper into this subject, uh, we're considering putting on an online seminar where people can um, buy a ticket and then get access to um, see Rob uh, lecture live on this and ask questions and interact and those kind of things. If that's something that you think would be good or something that you'd be interested in, um, go ahead and shoot us an email. You can email us at Seahag at TorahResource.com, Seahag at TorahResource.com. You can also give us a call on our comment line. It's 253-465-3205. Yeah, I think it's a good discussion, um, and I think that there's a lot more that could be said on this. Next week, for those who are interested, uh, we're going to bring, I believe we're going to bring a special guest on, my father, and we're going to do an entire show on a new book that has just been written out of Israel. And um, it was. Well, sent- I think it was, pu- yeah, published by three Israeli, you know, Jewish believers in Yeshua who work at uh, an Israel evangelical kind of institution, I think. And it's been, it's actually gotten some high praise by um, others within the Hebrew roots slash messianic movement. And we will take a look at it and see what we think. My father has, and Rob, and uh, actually the entire team at Torah Resource has uh, kind of dove into this book um, at the request of one of our, uh, uh, one of our teachers. Uh, We've kind of dove into this book to uh, look at it and see what we think. And um, so we would invite you to come and join us then uh yeah what a fun time it's been thank you very much to our supporters and to our executive producers this week the millers and we will hopefully see you all here next week when we do one thing and that is to attempt to glorify our great god and savior yeshua the messiah why there's only one reason because messiah matters